Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer and then we'll begin. Father, how grateful we are to be able to come before you. We know that we can come before your throne of grace and even come boldly before your throne of grace, not because of any confidence that we have in ourselves, but because of the confidence we have in the merits of your Son, Jesus Christ, and what he has wrought for us on his tree. Father, I pray that you would go with us now. We pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us into the truth of your word, would sanctify us in your truth, that your, the word of your truth will find uh, a good purchase in our hearts, and that we would be conformed more into the image of Christ our King as we know your word better. May we live lives of obedience to the glory of Christ. And Father, may our hearts be filled now with the awe and majesty of who you are. These things we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I would invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open to the book of Psalm. Psalm chapter 115. Psalm chapter 115. We'll kind of look at one verse here and that will be our springboard. This will be more of a uh, topical message tonight as we talk about Soli Deo Gloria, the glory of God alone, and then uh, Lord willing tomorrow and Saturday uh, we will be doing more exposition, but topical tonight. Psalm 115 verse 1. John, the great reformer John Calvin said this, he said, We never truly glory in Him and God until we have utterly discarded our own glory. The elect are justified by the Lord in order that they may glory in Him and in no one else. This fifth sola, sola deo gloria, it summarizes the other four solas. Sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, and sola scriptura. That all glory goes to God is the heartbeat of the Reformation. It is the heartbeat of the Reformation, and indeed it is the grand theme of all of Scripture itself. Psalm 115, verse 1, says this, Not to us, O Yahweh, not to us, but to your name give glory, because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Soli Deo Glory encapsulated in this one verse. Notice the repetition. Not to us, O Yahweh, not to us. The heart cry of the psalmist was that all glory go to God and go to God alone. When the angels announced the birth of Jesus Christ to the shepherds in the field, this was also their cry. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Glory to God in the highest. Glory to God alone. The reformers themselves never explicitly spoke of the five solas as we do today. You wouldn't have not have heard the reformers speak of the five solas in and of themselves. But the theology they represent infused and saturated the earth-shattering teaching of the reformers. It is noteworthy that neither the medieval Roman Catholic Church nor the Roman Catholic Church of today outright denied grace. They did not deny grace. They did not deny faith. They did not deny Christ. 
They did not deny the scriptures. They affirmed all of these things and still do, in theory. The problem, though, is that one little word, sola, alone, that word they did deny. The problem is that word, sola. So the Roman Catholic Church affirms grace, but they redefine grace to include man's efforts. But Paul has something to say about this, doesn't he? Romans chapter 11, verse 6. Paul says, but if it is by grace, it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. So it's not that the Roman Catholic Church doesn't talk about grace. They will use the word, but they redefine it. They read into it a meaning that is foreign from Scripture. They add to grace man's efforts. And when you add one scintilla, one hint of man's efforts, then it nullifies grace. Grace is no longer grace, as Paul said, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. The Roman Catholic Church will talk about faith. They'll talk about the importance of faith. They will say, we are saved by grace through faith, but not only by grace, not only by faith. To faith, they add our works. Yes, it's important to have faith. It's important to believe, says the Roman Catholic Church. But you add to faith your works. And that means that merits true faith. But the Apostle Paul, again, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, refutes this. Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. In this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. The Roman Catholic Church, of course, also talks about Christ. And they'll talk about his sacrifice on the cross. But they add to his sacrifice on the cross the sacrifice of the Mass. You see, they do not believe that Christ's atoning work was completed on the cross. They do not believe his words, it is finished. Because in the Mass, they re-sacrifice Jesus over and over and over. The Mass of the Roman Catholic Church is not a symbolic sacrifice. It is a real, in, according to the Roman Catholic Church Catechism, propitiatory sacrifice. So they don't deny that Jesus was on the cross. They don't deny that he paid for our sins. But that was not enough. Again, it's that word sola. The author of Hebrews refutes this. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. By this, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. But the Roman Catholic Church rejects this. In fact, I don't even know what the Roman Catholic Church does with the book of Hebrews. The whole book of Hebrews is like a, 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 an entire testimony to refute the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. And the Roman Catholic Church will affirm, affirm Scripture. They'll talk about the importance of Scripture. But they add to Scripture the Apocrypha, as well as the Magisterium, Church Tradition, Papal Bulls, so it's that one little word, sola, that the Roman Catholic Church will not accept. And yet that is the heart of the Reformation, that is the heart of the testimony of all of Scripture. Sole Deo Gloria, the fifth sola, seems to be a little bit of an outlier from the other four solas. Because the other four solas deal with matters of salvation, atonement, and authority. But the fifth sola is a little bit different because it doesn't explicitly deal with these things. 
Solideo Gloria deals with the glory of God alone, and this also the Roman Catholic Church rejects. They'll talk about the glory of God, but again, it is that one word, alone. It is this fifth sola that is the glue that holds all of the other four solas together. Because it is the word sola that crystallizes that all things are for God's glory and God's glory alone. If what the Church of Rome teaches about salvation and authority is true, then all glory does not go to God. Again, if what the Roman Catholic Church teaches about salvation and authority is true, then all glory does not go to God. God shares his glory with man. But words straight from God himself, recorded in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8, make this an unthinkable impossibility. Hear the words of Isaiah the prophet, chapter 42, verse 8. The words of God through Isaiah. God says this, I am Yahweh. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. I am Yahweh, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Think about that verse the next time you see a Roman Catholic priest or congregate bow down to a statue of Mary. Solideo Gloria tells us that everything that God does, the creation of the universe, the creation of plants and animals, creation of man and man's redemption of this is ultimately about God. As humans, we are certainly the beneficiaries of God's redemptive plan, but it is ultimately, dear ones, about him, not about us. We are the beneficiaries, but it is not about us. But here is the question, and this question underlies a bit of a tension in tension, T-E-N-S-I-O-N, tension in the fifth sola. Does the emphasis on the glory of God alone demean us as humans? Does it demean us? We are, after all, the pinnacle of God's creation, right? We are. Psalm chapter 8, verses 5 through 8 says this, Yet you have made him, referring to man, you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the animals of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. This speaks of the elevation of man. We are made as human beings. You and, I, you and I are made just a little bit lower than the angels. And God crowns us with glory and majesty, the text says. As humans, we are created in the image of God. We are created in God's image. We've been given dominion over the creation, over the animals. As Christians, we have been saved by grace. And we look forward to our own glorification, do we not? We look forward to our own glorification. I am looking forward to my glorification one day. So if we look forward to our glorification, does all glory really belong to God? You see the tension. All glory to God alone, or do we look forward to our own glorification? This is not a difficulty, but it is a tension. 
There is a tension between soli deo gloria and the way in which Scripture speaks of man. But hear this, dear ones. It is precisely in this glorification of man that God himself is most glorified. Okay? It is precisely in the glorification of man that God himself is most glorified. Our own future glorification will further glorify God, for it is all of him. As the Westminster Catechism famously states, quote, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Our delight in God, our awe of God, glorifies God. It is, in fact, the future glorification of man that buttresses Soli Deo Gloria. If man were not created in the image of God, with an eternal soul, capable of enjoying God forever, then our end would simply be the grave, dirt. Dear friends, there is a massive difference between humbling ourselves and debasing ourselves. We are to humble ourselves, but we are not to debase ourselves. We cannot know God without first being humbled. We must be humbled, be made aware of our need for God. If we are not humbled, we will not be aware of our need for God. We must be brought low and be made aware of our own dreadful and helpless state before a thrice holy God. We must be made aware that our sinful rebellion against God deserves nothing but His wrath, and we stand before Him condemned. We must acknowledge that our works will profit us nothing. They are filthy rags, and we are helpless before him, completely at his mercy. It has been said that spiritual growth is a growth downward. It is only when we have a lower view of ourselves that we will have a higher view of God. There's an inverse relationship to how we view ourselves and how we view God. The higher view we have of ourselves, the lower view we will have of God. The lower view we have of ourselves, the higher view we will have of God. So spiritual growth is a growth downward. It is a growth in in humility. But that is a very different thing than debasement. As humans, we are not debased. We are the pinnacle of God's creation. We have the capacity through a saving relationship with Jesus Christ to know God. None of the other created order has that privilege and ability. Only we as humans do. We can and we do share in what theologians sometimes refer to as the communicable attributes of God. Those attributes that God has in perfection that we share in, but we just, God has these in perfection, but we just dip our toe in them a little bit. Love, mercy, faithfulness, these communicable attributes of God we share in. Unlike the animals, we are made in his image and we possess an eternal soul. It is by our future glorification that God, in part, glorifies himself. It is in our glorification that God, in part, glorifies himself. So our own glorification, ultimately, is not even about us. It is about him. It's about God. Jonathan Edwards said this, quote, 
It is the necessary consequence of God's delighting in the glory of his nature that he delights in the emanation and effulgence of it. So what exactly do we mean by the glory of God? Well, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, we see the vision of Isaiah. And in verse 3, we see one angel calling out to another, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh. Many translations say Lord, but that's the name of God. Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. This is the only description of God that is repeated three consecutive times. You never see in Scripture that God is love, 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 or that He's merciful, merciful, merciful. You see that God is holy, holy, holy. And given that that is what the angels say, we might expect the angels to continue that sentence, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is filled with His holiness. That's what we might expect them to say because they've already said holy three times. But that's not what they say. Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. So before we can define glory, let's look a little bit at holiness. What is the holiness of God? Holiness is that quality which denotes absolute and total perfection in every good quality. Holy, holy, holy. Revelation chapter 4 verse 8 says this. The four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Holiness is perfect perfection. It is an inability to sin. Dear friends, it is not just that God does not sin. It is, in fact, that God cannot sin. A lot of times as Christians, we think in terms that God can do anything. But there are things that God cannot do, not just that he won't do, but that he can't do. God cannot lie. God cannot deny himself. God cannot sin. He has no capacity to sin. His holiness burns with the white-hot intensity of a trillion suns. He has no desire to sin. He is not tempted to sin. And any hint of shadow of darkness finds no place in God. The sum of everything pure, everything lovely, everything good, all moral excellencies are found in Him. He is the purest pure. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 says this, And this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Habakkuk 1, verse 13 says, Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. You cannot look on wickedness with favor. It is not, of course, that God cannot see evil and wickedness. He absolutely does. He's omniscient. He knows all things. There's nothing that escapes his knowledge. He sees every wicked deed and he knows every wicked thought. But he cannot look upon these things with any hint of approval or even tolerance. Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. 
But it was the ultimate fool's errand that Satan was on. Jesus not only did not succumb to Satan's temptations, but could not succumb to them. It was an impossibility for Jesus to succumb to the temptations of Satan. Theologians sometimes refer to this as the impeccability of Christ. It's not just that he didn't succumb, but he could not succumb. It was impossible. The holiness of God denotes his otherness to us. We succumb to temptation all the time. Jesus could not because he is holy. God is other than us. Nadab and Abihu were struck dead when they brought strange fire before God. You remember Uzzah as the ark was being carried on the cart pulled by the oxen and the oxen stumbled. And you and I can see this in our minds, right? You and I would have done the exact same thing. Uzzah's just walking alongside the ark and the ark tilted. And undoubtedly, without even thinking, just a natural, Uzzah reached up to steady the ark and God struck him dead. That gives just a hint of how holy God is. He is other to us. The holiness of God is the summation of all of God's attributes and all of his perfections. His holiness burns with the white hot intensity of a trillion suns. And I want us to look at two of the perfections of God, two of God's attributes, not a full study, of course, but two of his attributes that deal very closely and very specifically with sole deo gloria, two of God's attributes. The first one is his solitariness, his solitariness. God is alone. He is alone and he is without equal. God is unique. God is without companions. Exodus chapter 15, verse 11 says this, Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Who is like thee, O Lord? Of course, this is a rhetorical question. The answer is there is none like thee. There is none like God. You recall the plagues of Exodus, plagues of Exodus, 10 plagues. Each one of those plagues was a a judgment from God against Egyptian gods. Each one of those 10 plagues was a judgment against the true God, against the Egyptian gods. The Nile River was regarded as a God amongst the Egyptians. They thought the Nile River was a God. And so God said, okay, you like the Nile River? He turned it into blood. The frogs, the Egyptians had a frog-headed goddess. And so it was like God was saying, okay, Egyptians, you like frogs, do you? Here's some frogs. It's a judgment against a freakish frog-headed goddess. Flies were a god. Cattle was a god. God killed all the cattle. The hail that fell from the sky, that was a judgment on the sky goddess. In the death of the firstborn... That was a judgment on Isis, the Egyptian god who was supposedly the protector of children. So God was showing his supremacy against all of these pagan Egyptian gods. There is none like thee. He has no equal. He is alone. 
Before creation, God just was. He just was. And God was alone. There was no universe for God to uphold. There were no angels to sing Him praises. For all of eternity to past, God was self-contained and self-sufficient. God was alone, but hear this, He was not lonely. God was alone, but He was not lonely. God was self-satisfied. Isn't that an awesome thought? God was self-satisfied. The triune God was completely satisfied within Himself, the three persons of the Trinity. When God created, nothing was added to God. His glory can neither be increased nor can it be diminished. He created merely to manifest and to display His own glory. God did not create because he was lonely. God did not create man because God had a man-shaped hole in his heart. God was not lonely. His creation added nothing to him. His glory was neither increased nor diminished. And a note here. God desires to be praised because he is worthy of it, not because he needs it. I'll say that again. God desires to be praised because he is worthy of it, not because he needs it. Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 5 says this, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever, and blessed be thy glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. The important phrase here is above all blessing and praise. God's name is above all blessing. His name is above all praise. We praise Him because He is worthy of it, and He commands it because He is worthy of it, but it adds not one milligram, dear ones, to the weight of His glory. We are elected to the praise of His glory according to the good pleasure of His will, says the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. He created to manifest His glory, and He created us to praise Him for His glory, but we do not add anything to him. We do not make him more glorious when we worship him. He is fully glorious in and of himself. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 35 Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who is first given to him, and it shall be recompensed to him again? Again, rhetorical questions. Dear ones, we must escape from the shackles of this mindset that our worship somehow benefits God or rejuvenates him. We think that God is up in heaven six days out of the week, just kind of twiddling his anthropomorphic thumbs without a whole lot to do, really looking forward to Sunday. So he can bend his anthropomorphic ear down and hear our worship and and we can make him feel better. We can rejuvenate him, give him a boost for the week. No, our worship adds nothing to God. It does not benefit God. He is not more fulfilled. It doesn't make him feel better. We worship God because he is worthy of it and he commands it.
He is worthy of our worship. And we worship him because he is worthy and he commands it. Does he inhabit the praises of his people? Yes, he does. Psalm 22 verse 3 states that explicitly. But it is not out of necessity, nor is it out of anything lacking in him. He inhabits the praises of his people because he is worthy of it, he is glorious, and he is sovereignly chosen to manifest his glory. God does delight in us. He delights in us as his children. Psalm chapter 16 is clear about this. But he does not do so out of necessity, nor any lack in and of himself. Consider the words of Isaiah chapter 40, verses 15, then 17 and 18. Isaiah 40, 15, 17 and 18. Behold, the nations are like a drop in the bucket and regarded as a speck of dust from scales. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? To whom will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? Can I just say parenthetically, dear friends, this is not a challenge. When God says, to whom will you liken to me? This is not a challenge. And can we please do away with all of the illustrations that people try to come up with to illustrate the Trinity? You know, God is like an apple. God is like an egg. God is like water, you know, vapor and ice and all that. You can't compare God to anyone or anything. That's the whole point. There is no comparison. There is no comparison. He is without equal. And notice, behold, the nations are like a drop in the bucket. The nations are like a drop in the bucket. This is a comfort to me as you, as we look around our world and we see the state of world affairs right now. And as much as we may fret when we turn on the news and we see what Vladimir Putin is doing or um, any president, um, Joe Biden, Donald Trump, you know, and the president of Finland, I looked it up, Nanisto? Am I saying that right? What? Almost? Close enough, forgive me. (laughs) Dear friends, Vladimir Putin... Joe Biden, Donald Trump, Nanisto, whoever. (laughs) They are are bugs on God's windshield. They are bugs on God's windshield. God is sovereign. He is in control. The nations are like a drop in the bucket to him. To whom will you compare God? What likeness will you compare with him? Is this great God, the God that you are hearing preached from your pulpit Sunday after Sunday, the majesty of God, the glory of God, the awesomeness of God, the power of God, is this the God you are hearing preached in your pulpit on Sunday morning? I hope that it is. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. Think of that verse next time you hear someone claim that they've been to heaven and they want to tell you about it. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. God is solitary in his majesty, in his glory, in his perfections. 
He is without peer. He is without equal. He is without need for a counselor. He is lacking in absolutely nothing. He has need of no one and no thing. He is completely satisfied within himself. The solitariness of God. Now let's look at the aseity of God. A-S-E-I-T-Y. The aseity of God. This refers to God's self-existence. It's a term, it's a Latin term that literally means from self. God is self-existent. God has no no beginning. Of God's many attributes, this is one of the attributes that is probably most difficult for us to conceptualize in our minds. Because everything that you and I have ever known, everything that we can perceive with our five senses has a beginning, right? Everything has a beginning. This building has a beginning. You and I have a beginning. You know, we, we, we understand that. Everything has to have a beginning. The only thing, the only one who does not have a beginning is God. And that is so foreign to us. It's hard for our minds to wrap around. There was, a, there was an external cause which brought both you and I into this world. But God is not this way. He had no beginning. There was no external force, no entity which created him. He has always existed from eternity past. There has never been a time in which God was not. There's never been a time in which God was not. In fact, God himself created time. Psalm chapter 90, verses 1 through 4. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born... Or before you brought forth the whole world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God has always existed. He is the source of everything, both animate and inanimate. John chapter 1 verse 3 states this, All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. Colossians 1, 15 through 16 Referring to Jesus, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Watch this. All things have been created through him and for him. All things have been created through him and for him. Incidentally, Colossians 1, 15 and 16, this is... This is one of the, the, actually verse 15, it's one of the favorites of the cults like Mormonism. Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, they key in on Colossians 1.15, which says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. They say, oh, see right there, firstborn of all creation. Jesus was created. He was a created being. He was firstborn of all creation. But dear friends, that is not what that verse is talking about. Verse 16 defines verse 15. It says that all things have been created through him and for him. Notice the all things. If Jesus was a created being, then he himself would be among the all things created, right? If Jesus was a created being, then he would be among the all things that were created. But the all things that were created, this text explicitly says, were created by Christ. So Christ cannot be a created being. He is not a created being. He is the creator. And dear ones, there is no such thing as an atheist. There's no such thing as an atheist. 
There are people who claim to be atheists, but there are none. When their head hits the pillow at night and they are left to their own thoughts, they know there is a creator. It's just that they do not want to be accountable to him. Psalm chapter 14, verse 1 says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The word rendered fool here in the Hebrew does not denote someone who who lacks his faculties of reason. That's not the sense there. It's not someone who lacks faculties of reason, but rather someone who abuses his faculties of reason. He abuses them. It is not that he does not believe in God. It is that he wishes there was not a God. Oh, he believes in God. He just wishes there was not one. In fact, the most literal rendering of this in the Hebrew, Psalm 14, verse 1, is this. The fool has said in his heart, no God. Not there is no God. It just says no God. And the sense here is not, it's not so much there is no God, but the fool has said in his heart to God, no. It's more of an address. No, God. Oh, he knows there's a God. The fool knows there's a God. It's that the fool does not want to be accountable to God. And so this created being, the fool, is saying to his creator, no. No. That's the sin of Psalm chapter 14, verse 1. It is not that he does not know the truth. It is that he suppresses the truth in his unrighteousness, per Romans 1, verse 18. And interesting, look, the term used for God here in Psalm 14, verse 1, it's not Yahweh. It's not the Tetragrammaton. It's not the, na- the personal name for God, but rather it's Elohim. Elohim. And Elohim points to the providence of God and it emphasizes him as judge. And so the fool is saying to the judge, no, I don't want you. It's a statement of defiance. It's a thumbing of the nose before his creator. It is that he does not want to recognize God as sovereign judge. The atheist believes in God but does not want to be accountable to him. He loves his sin and does not want to give it up. One of my favorite verses in Scripture is Romans chapter 11, verse 36. In fact, I use Romans eleven thirty-six 36 in my, um, in my ministry logo. Romans eleven thirty-six says this, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's break this down a little bit. From him, God is the source of all things. Through him, God is the means of all things. He sustains all things. Per Hebrews 1 verse 3, he upholds all things by the word of his power. In Colossians 1 17, all things are held together in Christ. So from him and through him and to him, God is the goal of all things. All things exist for the manifest glory of God. For the manifest glory of God. Now, glory. This is a term I've used a number of times already. 
But what exactly is glory? What do we mean when we speak of glory? What is the meaning of glory? If holiness is the summation of all of God's attributes, then glory is the infinite and manifest beauty of those attributes. It is the glory of God is his holiness put on display. Does that make sense? The glory of God is the holiness of God put on display. That's what we mean by glory. God's glory is put forth for everyone to see in the created order, from the dizzying complexity of even a single cell to the vast expanse of the heavens. God's glory is on display for all to see. The amazing photos that we're starting to see now from the James Webb telescope, some of you may have seen those, you see them posted on social media, uh, show just the incomprehensible beauty of the cosmos. We see these nebula and novas and supernovas and galaxies. And I, I've always had a bit of an interest in, in space and astronomy, and I'm just fascinated by it because, it's, because it puts on the, the manifest glory of God, His holiness on display. It's awesome. It's awesome to see these things. We serve an amazing God. God's glory is on display in creation. But God's glory is also on display, dear ones, in our salvation. In our salvation. If you still have your Bibles, if you will, open to the book of James. James chapter 1. James chapter 1. I want us to look at verse 18 together. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. In the, exer- in the exercise of his will, his free will, God brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. As I said a moment ago, we as finite creatures, a hard time comprehending the the aseity of God, that there was never a time when God was not. And also the immutability of God, the fact that God does not change, is also hard for us to comprehend because for us everything changes. The seasons change, the times change, the trees change, you and I change. You and I are not exactly the same we, as right now as we were when we woke up this morning. Our bodies change all the time. Everything around us is constantly changing, constantly changing, but not God. God does not change. And we see the immutability of God here in this verse in contrast with the mutability of everything else. And it sets the stage for what James deals with in this text, specifically the authorship, the authorship of our regeneration, the new birth, our salvation. Who is the author of our salvation? And this touches on one of the great debates within Christianity. Who is responsible for the new birth? If you are a Christian, who is responsible for you being born again? Who is responsible for me being born again? Us or God? The created or the creator? 
There are four basic views of salvation. And if you want to write these down, it's, it's just kind of helpful to know. Four general views of salvation. The names of them, one is autosoterism. A-U-T-O, like an automobile, but autosoterism. And soter, when we speak of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, so that's what that etymology is. Autosoterism. Salvation from ourselves. Then there's theosoterism. Of course, theology, theo, God. There's sacerdotalism, S-A-C-E-R, dotalism. That is salvation through the sacraments, which is, of course, what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. They believe in, in uh, infused righteousness as opposed to imputed righteousness, what the Bible teaches. And this is, uh, this is one of the great divides between Roman Catholicism and, the, and Protestants, one of the key points of the Reformation. And then universalism. Universalism, the belief that everyone is saved. So autosoterism, theosoterism, sacerdotalism, and universalism. And we're going to focus on autosoterism versus theosoterism. Is salvation from us or is it from God? And this debate has been described as the continental divide of Christian theology. If you're familiar with American United States uh, topography at all, we have something called the Continental Divide in the United States. It's a, the Rocky Mountains. And there's a line that goes north and south through the Rocky Mountains. And the rain that falls on the west side of this Continental Divide eventually get, makes its way to the Pacific Ocean. The rain that falls on the east side of the Continental Divide goes down and eventually finds its way into the Mississippi River and out into to the Gulf of Mexico. So on which side does that rain fall depends on where that rain. So the, so the debate between autosoterism and theosoterism, whether salvation is from us or whether it's from God, this has been described as the continental divide of Christian theology. Indeed, a great description. Autosoterism, this is the Pelagian view or the semi-Pelagian view that we choose Christ. We choose him. We make a decision of our own free will. And this is rooted in a desire for fallen man to contribute something to his salvation. Most people want to contribute something. They want to feel like they have something to do with their own conversion. But dear friends, this is rooted in the sin of pride. For you and I to think that we have anything to do with our salvation, that is prideful. And that is sin. God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. But when we think we can choose Christ of our own free will, what we're saying is, is that we are smarter, we are more clever, and we are better than all the others who have rejected Christ. We're better than they are. That's prideful. That's prideful. But theosoterism, the belief that salvation is of God, from God, initiated by God, wrought by God, and maintained by God. That salvation is all of God. Theosoterism. And that is what I hold to, and I hope that's what I think probably all of us in here hold to. That salvation is all of God. Notice the text says, in the exercise of His will, not our will, His will. 
you hear a lot of people talk about, oh, we have free will. Our wills are in bondage to sin, but God has free will. And it is in the exercise of His will. He brought us forth. In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth. Notice the emphasis there. Notice the repeating of the pronoun He. In the exercise of His will, He brought us. That's there for emphasis. In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth. The point is unmistakable. This is God's doing. Our salvation is God's doing. This is not a decision we make. Our salvation is a direct result of God's good purpose, His eternal decree. No one influenced God to act on our behalf. No one influenced God to act on our behalf. Look at the contrast. Look at verse 13 through 15. James says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. That's what our wills get us. Death. Man's desire brings forth death. God's desire brings forth eternal life. In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth. It's the same verse, I mean, excuse me, the same verb that is found in verse 15. Verse 15, when it says that it brings forth death, God's, uh, man's will brings forth death. Well, God's will brings us forth by the word of truth. It's the same verb, hapakoeo. Man's desire, man's will always leads to death, but God's desire brings forth salvation. It brings forth salvation. A few examples in Scripture. Saul in Acts chapter 9. Remember Saul, he was still breathing forth threats to the church. And what happened on the Damascus road? Jesus showed up and Jesus asked Saul, Saul, would you like me to come into your heart and be your Lord and Savior? Saul, will you pray this prayer after me? No. Saul's conversion had nothing to do with him. Nothing to do with him. God saved him sovereignly. Searching for Jesus was the last thing on Saul's mind. He hated Christ. And Christ came to him and converted him instantaneously and sovereignly. There's no sinner's prayer prayed by Saul. And what Jesus said to him in Acts chapter 9... Jesus said, Saul is a chosen instrument of mine, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. How's that for an invitation? What do we hear in the modern evangelical church? Come to Jesus because he'll make your life better. Come to Jesus because he'll make you wealthy, he'll heal your body, he'll do all these wonderful things for you, he'll help you to have a you know, better relationships, and Jesus will make your life better. That's not what Jesus said in Acts chapter 9. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. 
That wouldn't fly in most churches today. God opened the heart of Lydia in Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 6, this is when, this is when Christ, Christianity jumped a continent. Lydia's conversion was when Christianity jumped into Europe. God opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Did Lydia respond to the gospel? Yes, she responded to the things spoken of by Paul. She responded to the gospel, but she only responded because God first opened her heart so she could do so. The only reason that Lydia responded was because God opened her heart. Without God's sovereignty, her heart was closed and she would not have responded to what Paul said without God first opening her heart. John chapter 1 verses 12 through 13 referring to the children of God and we are children of God and we are born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of God. How much more clear could that be? Friends, we are born again not of blood not by the will of the flesh not by the will of man but of God. Salvation is all of God. All of God. And yes, we do respond to the gospel. But the only way that we can respond to the gospel in true faith and true repentance is if God first opens our heart. He must do that. And God commands, follow me here, God commands, as Paul said in Acts chapter 26, all men everywhere to repent, right? He commands all men everywhere to repent. But repentance is in, the, in and of itself granted by God. We can't repent on our own. Repentance is a gift granted by God. So God is literally commanding men to do something that they cannot do. Someone who is lost in his sins, dead in trespasses and sins, that person can't repent on his own. He can't believe on his own. So why does God command people to do something that they can't do? Because it is the very command of God that enables lost sinners, dead in trespasses and sins. It is the very command of God to do something that they cannot do that enables them to do that very thing. Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus can't come forth. He's four days dead in the tomb and he stinketh. But it is the command to do something that Lazarus cannot do on his own that enabled Lazarus to come forth. It is the command to repent. God commands us to do something that we cannot do on our own, but it is the very command of God that enables us to do that very thing. It is the command of God to repent. It is the command of God to believe. To do these things which we cannot do that enables us to do them. The effectual call of the gospel for his elect. Now I remember before I was, before I was a Calvinist. And um, this was before my conversion. When I thought I was a Christian, but I wasn't. And um, I would, anytime... 
I would heard the I would hear the term Calvinism. It was always bad. You know, Calvinism was always a bad thing. Everyone spoke of it negatively. It was bad. It's you know, kills missions, kills evangelism. And I heard this probably more than anything else. Calvinism is arrogant. It's an arrogant doctrine. No, no, no. Here's what is arrogant. I'll show you what arrogant is. Arrogance is the belief that we, when we look upon Christ and we we see the mockings that Jesus took, we see the scourgings that Jesus took, we see the point of his we see that Jesus took the nails and took upon himself the full undiluted fury of God's wrath. We see all that Jesus took upon himself. And then we say, but Jesus, I, I, I thank you for doing these things, Jesus, but I'm going to help you. I helped you by choosing you. I helped out. I had something to do with this, too. That's arrogant. That is arrogance. To think that we could add anything to what Christ has done, that is arrogant. I helped you, Jesus. I deserve some credit in this thing, too. That's arrogance. That's arrogance. It has been said the only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary in the first place. Rightly understood Calvinism, and I, I don't even go around calling myself a Calvinist because very few people really understand what that even is. They just, it's a kind of a caricatured name. Most people who don't like Calvinism, if you asked them to define Calvinism, they couldn't even tell you. But rightly understood, Calvinism or the doctrines of grace, the doctrine of election, is the most humbling doctrine that there is. I know that there are some, I guess, arrogant Calvinists, but let me tell you, dear friends, an arrogant Calvinist should be a contradiction in terms. It should be a contradiction in terms. That thing, that shouldn't exist. Because rightly understood, Calvinism, the doctrine of election, the doctrine of God's sovereign grace, is the most humbling doctrine that there is. Because it strips from us everything that we think we have contributed to our salvation. It strips it all away. And we are left with nothing. All glory goes to God. All glory goes to Him. It should be the most humbling doctrine that there is. God must save us because we cannot save ourselves. We will not save ourselves. Jeremiah chapter 13. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard change his spots? Again, a rhetorical question. No. The Ethiopian cannot change his skin. The leopard cannot change his spots. You and I can do nothing for ourselves. We are completely at the mercy of God. 
and rightly understood, it is the most humbling doctrine there is. There should never be any such thing as an arrogant Calvinist. Only humble Calvinists. Because rightly understood, we, under, we understand that we are no better than anyone else. And it is only by God's sovereign grace that He has saved us. He has brought us forth by the word of truth, James says. The word of truth. What is this word of truth? The word of truth is the gospel. Colossians 1.5, Paul reminded his readers that the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you have previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, the gospel. The word of truth occurs here in James and three other times in the New Testament and it always refers to salvation. The gospel is the instrument through which God brings the dead to life, through which he calls his lost sheep to himself. Romans 1.16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. For everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Greek, to the Gentile. The power of God is the gospel. The word of truth is the gospel. And then James says, So that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. The early Christians, the early believers were the first fruits. They were the earnest, if you will, of all those who would be brought to saving faith through the word of truth, the gospel. They were the first fruits of all the other Christians that would later be saved, including you and me. I love what Jesus says in John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer. Jesus says, I ask not on behalf of these alone, referring to his disciples, but for all of those who will also believe in me through their word. But also for all who not might believe in me, but who will believe in me through their word. Notice that Jesus assumes the success of his disciples' mission. He assumes the success. Now, honestly, at the time, humanly speaking, he didn't have a lot of reason to be real confident in his disciples. They all scattered like a covey of quail when he was nailed to the cross. They all fled, afraid that they were going to be the next ones put up on that cross. Only John stayed. So not a lot of reason, earthly speaking, to be real confident in these disciples. But he assumes the success of their mission. Why? Because he knows that the power of God is the gospel. He knows that. I do not pray just for these, but also for all who will believe in me through their testimony, through their word. Luke 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. It does not say that Jesus came to seek and to make salvation possible. It says that he came to seek and to save. He came to actually and infallibly save. That's an important distinction, dear ones. Jesus didn't come just to make salvation possible. He came to save. He came to save. And Jesus is not a frustrated deity. This is the divine purpose of our salvation. To the praise of the glory of His grace. 
to the praise of the glory of His grace. This is repeated three times in Ephesians chapter 1. In verse 6, to the praise of the glory of His grace. Verse 12, to the praise of His glory. Verse 14, to the praise of His glory. Our salvation is ultimately about God, to the praise of the glory of His grace. We have a song in... um, in America that a lot of churches sing, and I don't know if you have the equivalent here, probably do in, in Finland, but there's a, a line out of that song that says, when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. No, no, no. When he was on the cross, the glory of God was on his mind. The glory of God was on his mind. Our salvation is ultimately about God. We are the beneficiaries of it, but it is ultimately about Him. Psalm 25 verse 11 says this, For your name's sake, O Yahweh, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. For your name's sake. Not for me, but for your name's sake, O Yahweh, pardon my iniquity. You see, the psalmist understood that the forgiveness of his sins, his salvation was ultimately about God. For your namesake, pardon my iniquity. As we conclude, to whom would you rather trust your eternal destiny? To yourself or to God? Would you rather entrust yourself in your own decision making regarding your eternal home or God? Do you trust yourself when the Bible says that we, apart from Christ, are dead in our sins, Ephesians chapter 2? We are evil from the womb, Psalm chapter 51. That our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked, Jeremiah 17 verse 9. When we love the darkness and hate the light, John chapter 3. When we suppress the truth and unrighteousness, Romans chapter 1. When we do not seek after God, Romans chapter 3. When we are in fact enemies of God, Romans chapter 5. Do you trust yourself in that state? Or do you trust God? Or do you trust the one who is all-knowing, all-loving, all-merciful, and wholly just? I have far more confidence in God than I do in myself. I trust God with my salvation, not myself. To you and to you alone, O Lord. We end tonight where we begin. Psalm chapter 15, verse 1. Not to us, O Yahweh, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. All of us who are Christians, this is our heart cry. Not to us, O Yahweh. Not to us. But to your name, give glory. Soli Deo Gloria. Let's close in a word of prayer. Not to us, O Lord. Not to us. But to your name, give glory. Father, may we be overwhelmed by the majesty of who you are. May we be reminded of our frailty.
May we be humbled but not debased. May we be humbled in knowing that we are but dust, we are frail, but we serve a great and mighty God. And Father, it is our heart cry that it is not to us, it is not to us, O Lord, but to you may we give glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.